Good morning and welcome. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, Senior Pastor of St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We are delighted that you can join us for this Pastor's Bible class. Whether you are joining us here in the St. Louis area on KFUO 850 AM radio station, or whether you are joining us from another location on KFUO.org online, welcome. We're delighted you can be with us. As is our custom in this class, we're going to be looking at the lessons assigned not for this Sunday, not for today, but for the following Sunday, for Sunday, August 2. And so we'll be looking at, first of all, the Old Testament lesson assigned, which is Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 5. Then we will look at the epistle lesson, Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, and we'll look at the optional uh, verses as well, uh, verses 6 through 13, and we'll end with Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, the feeding of the 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children by Jesus. Prior to that, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving and praise for all your blessings to us. We thank you, first of all, for those physical provisions which you provide for us each and every day, all that we need to support us in this body and life. But above all, we thank you for the heavenly provision you have made for us in the sending of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For his life and death and resurrection once again, we give you the thanks and the praise, and for the assurance that we will be seated at the heavenly banquet which will have no end. We pray your Holy Spirit's presence and blessing upon our study here this day, that he may guide us further into truth, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge of your word and your will for us as your children here on this earth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, as I mentioned, we'll look at Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 5. And we're going to be seeing here the imagery of water and bread and wine and milk being used, spiritually speaking, God inviting his people to come and receive freely uh, the provisions that he provides. And, of course, he's speaking um, not so much of, of course, physical uh, water and bread and so on, but of the spiritual sustenance, the spiritual nourishment uh, that he has to give. And we'll talk about this in greater length as we get into the verses. So, again, he's going to... Uh, invite his people to come and receive free of charge everything that the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, has already paid for and purchased with his uh, bloodshed on the cross. And so with that, let's go right into Isaiah 55. Let's start with the first verse, and then we'll stop and, and say a few things about it. Uh, here we are, uh, verse 1, Come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Let's go back and look at this a little bit further. Notice the repetition, first of all, of God's gracious invitation. Uh, we have, uh, at least in the English, it's four times um, that invitation to come. Uh, I believe in the original it's only three, but at any rate, the repetition here, it's almost... You get the, almost the impression uh, of a merchant uh, on the street 
inviting people to come and receive what he has to offer. And that's what we have God uh, doing here repeatedly. Now, this imagery of water, where it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, is used in the scriptures for a, a spiritual thirsting. And the water uh, that being that which quenches the spiritual thirst, and that only God, and we'll see in just a moment in the New Testament, only Jesus uh, can quench that spiritual thirst. Any other attempt to quench it uh, can only leave us parched. And with that, let's take a look at John uh, chapter 4 and the account of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. John chapter 4, and let's start with verse 10 and see how Jesus uses this same imagery in his conversation with her. Jesus answered her, starting at verse 10, I, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. The well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So you see how Jesus used that same imagery of thirst and quenching thirst. In fact, water's welling up or springing up uh, to eternal life. It's a beautiful image. And of course, in the Middle East, water is such a precious commodity that it's a very fitting one uh, to represent the spiritual thirst that only God can quench. And notice that this gift is given free of charge. Uh, we have, it says here, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. So again, God without any charge is giving freely here, uh, spiritually speaking, of course, uh, all that can finally quench thirst, all that can finally fill and satisfy. And of course, uh, it has to be that way because spiritually speaking, we have nothing to offer as sinners. Uh, we are spiritually bankrupt and without any uh, so-called money or currency to offer in exchange for God's precious gifts. And again, that gracious invitation from him to come, buy, and eat. Um, and it, it repeated again, without money and without price at the end of verse 1. And, of course, that's only possible because Christ has already paid the price, uh, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. Let's go on to verse 2 then. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Well, going back, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? 
certainly a reference to idolatry and trying to find that thirst quenched and that hunger satisfied in other sources, in other things. This, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago when leading this same study, was a perennial problem for God's people uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, It seemed that they uh, could not help themselves when it came to worshiping false gods. It was a just a completely repetitive problem for them. And, of course, there is a very appropriate modern-day application of this as well. We look around and see all of the items that people turn into gods in their lives. There is only one true God, of course, and uh, God commands us not to have any other gods. And Luther says we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. But how many other things today don't people fear, love, and trust, even more at times than the one true God? We think of everything from the physical provisions that God himself provides for us. We think of careers. We think of our own uh, social standing uh, in in, uh, the eyes of others. Just about anything and everything can be turned into a false god in our lives and receive a higher place in our life than the one true God. And that ultimately does not satisfy, as Isaiah says here. It ultimately leads and leaves us hungry and thirsty. Uh, God invites his people again uh, to listen diligently to him and to eat what is good. And, of course, we think there of, uh, again, going to the Gospel of John, this time John chapter 6, verse 35, where Jesus uh, says, of course, referring to himself, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And so we have this direct correlation, uh, again, uh, to the only source that can ultimately provide sustenance and ultimately can satisfy, and that is God. And specifically in the New Testament, we see Jesus applying this to himself as well. Uh, Verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And we think here of incline your ear to me, uh, brings up the imagery of listening to the voice of God, and we think especially also of listening to the word of God. There is where we hear the voice of our God. And here we certainly want to emphasize the importance of hearing that word on a daily basis. We speak certainly of that word being read and being taught and being proclaimed as we gather for corporate public worship, but there's also the importance of daily hearing the voice of God and inclining our ear toward him, so to speak, as we read his word, as we study his word, And we think, of course, of the importance also of Bible class, as we are doing right here, 
as we are strengthened in that word and as our, our knowledge and our understanding of that word uh, continues to grow. This is where we hear the voice of God and hear the voice of our Savior. Once again, I want to refer us to the Gospel of John and the words of Jesus. He says in John chapter 10, starting with verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The importance of hearing the voice of our Savior in and through the Word of God. It is that life-giving, life-sustaining Word that God here invites us to incline our ear toward and actually hear. Here he says that your soul may live. That soul, of course, not only living here and now, but eternally in the presence of God. And after Christ returns, our bodily resurrection and being reunited with that soul will be in the presence of Christ in our God eternally as well. Here he says he makes an everlasting covenant. And of course, covenant is Old Testament language used all the way back in the book of Genesis, God's covenant uh, with Abraham, first of all, for example. And uh, some people mistakenly understand a covenant as a mere agreement. And in one sense, it is a promise or an agreement from, uh, from and with God. But in the case of God's covenants, with God's covenant rather, with uh, his people, his people have nothing to bring to the agreement. They have nothing to bring to the table, so to speak. It is God who brings everything. Uh, it is that covenant with Abraham, for example, back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, where God said he would make of him a great nation, that uh, he would make his descendants great that uh, through, through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. And we'll talk about that just a little bit uh, later. Um, he goes on to say that an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Well, David's line is going to continue, of course. Uh, it is going to continue all the way to the one who is a son of David, of the house and lineage of David, none other than Christ himself. Uh, you know, we stop and think about it, it looked like, at one point, the line of David uh, was all but finished. Uh, we think of what happened in 586 B.C. when the Babylonians came and overtook Judah. And we have that account. Uh, we won't read it here, but it's in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 5 through 7, where the uh, final king uh, in Judah, Zedekiah, uh, is apprehended. And the last thing he sees uh, is his two sons uh, being killed. And then Zedekiah's eyes are, are plucked out, are taken out. He's blinded uh, by the Babylonian soldiers and is dragged off to Babylon. And so we see here, it, it, it appeared, humanly speaking, we should say, that the line of David was all done. But no, God says, not at all. Uh, he is that everlasting covenant uh, his steadfast, sure love for David is going to continue. And, of course, we know that there was eventually a remnant that uh, came back, that God brought back, and it is through that faithful remnant that he brings forth the Savior. 
And in fact, in verse 4, we see a turning to David's greater son, Jesus himself. Uh, Let me read, uh, I'll read verses 4 and 5, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Behold, I made him, so notice we're, we're talking here about a specific person here, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Now, what are the hymn here is referring to David. David certainly in many ways was a witness to the peoples, a leader, commander for the peoples, but ultimately here, when we talk especially of peoples and nations, we think of David's greater son, Jesus. He will be the perfect witness uh, that God's people and even David could never be. And we think of the peoples that God will be uh, gathering before him. And this, by the way, is a, is a concept that certainly runs through the Old Testament, that, again, God was going to be the God not only of uh, his chosen people, uh, Israel, but was going to be a uh, God and is a God uh, to the nations and for the nations. And we think of how that is portrayed in the heavenly banquet in Revelation chapter 7. Let me just read for you there and think as I'm reading this again about the emphasis upon all nations coming uh, and being glorified. Uh, We're going to look at Revelation 7, starting with verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, here we go, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So we have there that beautiful picture of uh, people from every tribe and language and nation before the throne of God and before the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, giving thanks and praise and glory to our God. And of course, we know Jesus in the Great Commission says, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so we see here 700 years before Christ would walk this earth, here again is Isaiah uh, prophesying, God prophesying through Isaiah, that this is exactly what was going to happen. Uh, Nations that they do not know uh, will will, uh, be called and will run to them. And of course we think that ultimately this is the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. And of course, it's through his ultimate descendant, Jesus Christ, that all nations would be blessed. 
It's through Jesus Christ that all nations would be called, and through Jesus Christ that all nations um, would have the opportunity to have sins forgiven and everlasting life and have a seat at that eternal banquet table uh, in heaven. So what a wonderful prophecy uh, in Isaiah chapter 55. And uh, it'll, as you see, we'll have some common threads running with the gospel lesson, and we'll see that in just a little bit. First, however, we look at the epistle lesson, Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to look also at the optional inclusion of verses 6 through 13. And we'll see here in Romans 9, first of all, in the verses 1 through 5, Paul's lament uh, for his own people, for the Jews, for the sons of Jacob. Remember, Paul is a, remember he describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a Jew himself uh, by birth, and uh, he laments here that his own people, uh, though they had many advantages, they were the chosen people of God in the Old Testament, but failed to recognize Jesus for the Messiah he is. And, you know, Paul, in these first verses we are going to see, you can just uh, sense the anguish um, as we read these verses. And then, uh, finally, in verses 6 through 13, um, we'll see God's word of promise, and we'll talk a little bit about who really are the children of God. Let's start then in uh, verse uh, 1 of, uh, I'm sorry, verse, yes, verse 1 of chapter 9. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and of course Paul is in Christ as um, uh, he is, is speaking this. I am not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. You can almost sense here the fact that Paul feels compelled to speak. Um, he, he can't hold back what he is going to say. What is it? First of all, verse 2, starting with verse 2 now that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You can just, again, sense how heartbroken he is for his people, uh, that they are living outside of uh, the salvation that, that God so freely offers in Christ. And we can think, of course, if we stop here for just a moment, we think of the uh, parallels that we see today. Uh, for, for example, maybe a family member who is living outside of faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe uh, a family member, maybe a son or a daughter, or, um, you know, at times a parent or a brother or a sister um, who is living outside of faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and we pray for them. And our heart uh, just breaks for them and for that. Um, Again, you can sense that anguish that Paul has here, and that same sort of anguish is shared by people today who, as I say, either have uh, relatives or friends who are living outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And what a statement Paul says here in verse 3, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ, for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Isn't that amazing? Paul is, in effect, saying here, uh, if it were possible, I wish that I could be cut off, 
instead of my, uh, my kin, kinsmen, my, my brothers. Um, it, it's almost, you know, it is a very Christ-like sort of uh, vicarious atonement, you might say, that Paul wishes he could take their place, that, that he be cut off, that he be cursed, instead of what he is seeing, namely that his own people are being cursed and are being cut off. He, he is you know, saying, I wish I could take your place if it would mean that you would live and I would die. And not only, you know, it is a, as I said, it, it's exactly what Christ has done for all of us. He has taken our place. We who were accursed and we who were cut off from God, uh, Christ has come and taken our place. It also occurred to me that there's a time in the Old Testament where Moses made this same kind of, uh, not only a wish, but an actual offer to God. Uh, when God was angered by his people and ready to just completely destroy them. In, uh, this is in Exodus 32, uh, verse 32, where Moses says to God, But now, if you will, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Uh, so, again, uh, Moses is, is offering here to kind of take... Uh, his people's place before God, uh, very same thing that Christ in reality, as I say, has done uh, for all people. And again, there's that, that call that God issues to come and receive what Christ has purchased for us freely and without cost, as we saw in the Old Testament lesson. Now, let's go to verse uh, 4, and we'll see here that he says here, they are the... Israel, they are Israelites, and that's the first use, actually, the first occurrence of this term, and to them belong, and here Paul is going to tick off six different things that you would say are um, advantages, I guess you would say, that the Israelites had, spiritually speaking, and should have led them to uh, uh, eventually, faith in Jesus Christ and, and recognition of Christ as the Messiah. Paul says here, they had the promise, or I'm sorry, they had the adoption, God choosing them by his grace. There was nothing in his people that uh, uh, caused him to choose them. But again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all down the line, uh, they had the glory uh, and this is the second thing mentioned here, and we think of the glory of God shown throughout the Old Testament as witnessed by his people. And they reflected that glory most of some of the, I probably better say some of the time, uh, because it, so often they were so uh, imperfect as mirrors reflecting that glory of God. But they had the glory of God throughout the Old Testament. Uh, number three, they had the covenants, he says. And we think of, again, the covenant with Abraham, but it uh, continued with Isaac and Jacob and so on, and the promises throughout the Old Testament uh, to send the promised Messiah. He says, number four, they had the giving of the law. And in a narrow sense, we could talk about the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, but there's another wider sense where we talk about the law as meaning the, the giving of God's word to his people throughout the Old Testament, God speaking 
through Moses and the prophets throughout the Old Testament to his people. Uh, the worship, number five, he says they had the worship. And we think of the worship, in the, first of all, in the tabernacle, and then ultimately in the temple, Solomon's temple, as Solomon built. Uh, God's presence with them throughout uh, the Old Testament, even, even as they were on their way from Egypt to the promised land, there with a, a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. They had all of that and still all those advantages and did not uh, receive uh, Christ, the, the Messiah. And that is what Paul is lamenting. Finally, he says they had the promises at the end of verse 4. The promises throughout the Old Testament, not only the covenants again to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but all the promises to his people, um, uh, not only about their future, but again especially about uh, the coming Messiah, the one who would come and take upon himself uh, the sins of God's people, wounded for their transgressions, bruised for their iniquities, Upon him would be the chastisement that would make them whole, as God promises through Isaiah, for example, just one example. So in spite of all that, Paul is saying, in spite of all of that, uh, they did not receive Christ and recognize Christ as a Messiah. Going on now, verse 5, um, to them belong the patriarchs, we think again, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So the ultimate irony is that from their line, physically speaking, according to the flesh, as Paul says, actually came the Messiah, actually came the promised anointed one. Verse 6 but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So in other words, is this, is this the fault of God's word that they did not receive Christ? No, he says it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Sounds almost contradictory here. But what Paul is going to do in, these, in this verse and coming up is make a distinction between those who are of Israel by blood... Those who are sons of Jacob, for example, by bloodline, and those who are sons of Jacob or God's children through faith, sons of Abraham through faith. And so if we look at verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So not, not all are children of Abraham just because physically they are descendants of Abraham, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And this is a reference to Isaac as the promised son, the one who was promised to Abraham and to Sarah. And so he's making a distinction here between actual bloodline and lineage and faith in the promise, in this case the promised son Isaac, and of course Ultimately, faith in the promised Son of God, Jesus Christ. Uh, we see Paul here uh, making a similar uh, distinction in Galatians chapter 3. And we want to look at verse 7. Um, he says here, Paul in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith 
who are the sons of Abraham. And that includes, of course, not only some uh, of uh, Abraham's descendants who have been called to faith in Jesus Christ. I don't want to ignore that fact. But it also includes, of course, the nations, the Gentiles. Uh, the way the Old Testament lesson that we just read ended, uh, running uh, to them and coming to them, nations they did not know. And so Paul makes this distinction then between those who are physical descendants of Abraham and Jacob and those who are by faith uh, children of Abraham. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And of course, this was the promise that God spoke uh, to Abraham uh, back in Genesis 18, uh, that he was going to have a son, the long-promised son, uh, who later would come, that would be Isaac, be born to Abraham and Sarah, eventually born when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, and proving again that uh, this son did not come by any uh, physical means, but only through the promise of, of God. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say didn't come by physical means, but was the result of God's working. Maybe it would be a better way of, of saying that. So again, it's faith in the promise. Then in verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, he references in verse 10 the uh, sons, two sons, born to Rebekah and to Isaac, of course. And these sons were uh, uh, Jacob and Esau, of course. And you wonder, why does he reference this? Why does he bring this in? Maybe, and this is just a speculation here, Maybe he's countering the argument that would say, well, you're, in the previous verse, Paul, you were talking about uh, Abraham and Sarah, but there was another son born uh, to Abraham and Hagar, of course, and that was Ishmael. Here, he says now, look at, here's two sons born to uh, one woman and one man, and yet, through that, uh, God is in control and he chooses, he elects by grace, again, um, uh, Jacob. And Esau's descendants, in verse 12, would be the Edomites. Uh, and he says uh, that they would, the older uh, Esau, would serve the younger Jacob. And it would be their descendants, of course, the Edomites, who would eventually be serving the descendants of Jacob, meaning the, the Israelites. And so we get here God's election being won strictly by grace, not anything to do with either Jacob or Esau or anything that either Rebekah or Isaac did. 
God simply is in control of all history, and he chooses, he elects by his grace. Not, again, anything to do with them physically uh, or, or their, their accomplishments or their social status or any other human factor, we might say. All right? So here we are, again, Paul lamenting the fact that his people had all these advantages and God had chosen them, had called them by his grace, had given them those, those six uh, items that we had mentioned, and even the fact that through their line uh, the, the Savior was born. And again, it was strictly by God's grace, as we read in these last verses. And in spite of all of that, Paul laments over the fact that they have not received God's Messiah. With that now, let's go on to the gospel lesson for today. Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21. And this is Jesus feeding the 5,000, as I said, men. We'll see in the last verse. We don't know how many women and children the total crowd would include. And so we don't know what that total crowd numbered. Let's start at verse 13 of Matthew 14. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Let's stop for a moment. In verse 13, uh, it says, when Jesus heard this. Well, we have to ask, what's the this that Jesus heard about? And we look in the previous uh, verses, we find out that it is actually the beheading of John the Baptist that Jesus had heard about. And we won't go into all the details. Um, you can read those as to how it actually transpired that uh, John was executed. First he was in prison and then executed um, as a result of a request made. Um, well, I don't want to go into all the details. We don't have the time here. But it, it's interesting to me, I was, I was thinking about this and contemplating this, that we have to remember that uh, John the Baptist, uh, humanly speaking, uh, is related to Jesus. Remember that Mary uh, is the cousin to Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist. And we see here perhaps just a little window into the emotions uh, of Jesus. And again, I, I realize fully that I'm reading into this. Uh, there's no mention of any emotion here. But remember Jesus at the death of his good friend Lazarus. And the shortest verse in the Bible, the two words, Jesus wept. Um, we remember that Jesus was also true man, and he had emotions, he had feelings. And you wonder um, where it says here, after he heard this, namely the death of John the Baptist, he withdrew. Um, just wonder, you know, we'd we love to know again, uh, what were his thoughts? Uh, what, were, what was his reaction, even from an emotional standpoint at this point? Um, we know that uh, as he withdrew, the disciples were with him. Uh, it doesn't say it here, but it does in Mark chapter 6, verse 32. And we know that they were going across here the Sea of Galilee, uh, and they went to the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, near a town called Bethsaida, and we know that from Luke chapter 9, verse 10. By the way, I should mention that this feeding of the 5,000 men is such a significant uh, event. 
that it is one of the items that is um, depicted, uh, described in all four of the gospel books. Um, so that's why we can get some details from some of the other books that we don't have here in Matthew as well. Now, the crowds follow after him. Uh, and so verse 14, when he, namely Jesus, of course, went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Good point to be made here is this word compassion. It is a Greek word that depicts a gut-wrenching sort of emotion uh, and response. Uh, in, in Greek, I could, I could say the word, and perhaps you can, it's almost descriptive of the emotion. It's, it's the Greek word splaxna, and you can almost sense that a gut-wrenching compassion. An interesting study, by the way, is to see uh, how this word is used in the Gospels and the times that Jesus feels compassion for people. And it's also, I think, worth noting that it, it appears that Jesus is moved to this gut-wrenching compassion when he sees the people in terms of their physical needs, because here Matthew com uh, connects the having compassion with the healing their sick. And, you know, the, the seeing these uh, people with all kinds of diseases and physical uh, challenges, debilitating things, here Jesus is moved to compassion for them and heals them. Uh, so, um, and, and of course, we'll talk a little bit later about some of the implications here, but, uh, you know, every time Jesus heals someone, it's not only a demonstration, obviously, of his complete control uh, over all things, over, over all of creation, but it also um, is, uh, you might say, pulling the curtain back a little bit and indicating that here the reign of God is, is here on this earth, and it's pointing ahead to the ultimate day of complete and total healing, of course, um, when Christ shall return and uh, raise our bodies, as Paul says, incorruptible and immortal. And don't we look forward to that day. But anyway, that's a bit of a digression there, but we don't want to let that pass by. He healed their sick. Now, the big miracle, verse 15. Now, when it was evening... The disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Uh, send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now, we don't want to be critical of the disciples here, uh, necessarily. What they are, uh, they're, they're putting two and two together here. There's this huge crowd. And, you know, we don't want to miss that fact either, that, that Jesus is... is uh, garnering huge crowds that are following him, even to the point where they, uh, you know, uh, he's crossing the Sea of Galilee and they're following him on land, of course, and they're even getting out there ahead of him in some cases. But um, uh, it, the disciples are just putting two and two together here, and it's very logical. You know, the day is getting dark, uh, nighttime's about to come. Uh, we, you know, the day is almost over. Send the crowds. Uh, they're going to be hungry. Let them go into the towns and villages and buy food for themselves, so provide for themselves, we might say. It's very logical, very practical. Verse 16, but Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. 
This is kind of abrupt in the text and, and a, you know, a uh, command that the disciples would think is just uh, crazy, uh, so to speak. Uh, how, how are we going to give them something to eat? And verse 17, they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. Uh, these, of course, would be uh, staples uh, food uh, there in that, in that region uh, around Galilee. Uh, bread, as we mentioned in the Old Testament lesson, bread here again, uh, and fish, uh, but it's such a small amount. I mean, it would hardly be enough for the disciples, let alone this huge crowd. Verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. Well, we see Jesus here doing uh, kind of, uh, you, you, you hear an echo here of the Lord's Supper in the upper room with the disciples that Jesus uh, kind of takes over here, um, and he does the blessing. Uh, no doubt giving thanks uh, for that food. The small amount that seemed to be there is going to turn into much more. And they all ate and were satisfied. The all, of course, refers not only to the disciples, but to the crowds. Because he said, or it said rather, that the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and, notice, were satisfied. It's not that they all just got a little uh, morsel. They all ate and were satisfied. They were filled. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. So there was an abundance even left over, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. One thing I noticed here uh, at the end of this, and it, you know, it goes right into right after this. It's like, okay, this is over. Now we're going to uh, cross the Sea of Galilee again. It, it seems to end so abruptly here. We don't get any reaction uh, from the disciples. We don't uh, hear or see what their reaction is. We don't hear or see any of the reaction of the crowds here. Uh, it's simply we, as the readers who are kind of left to just marvel at this on our own and, and think, boy, how incredible this was on our own. But, boy, wouldn't we love to know what was the reaction of the disciples when they witnessed this? They knew there were only five loaves of bread and two fish, and then they saw this happen right before their very eyes to the point where they've got an abundance even left after these 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children uh, partake of all of this food. Well, let's stop for a moment and think about some of the implications of this, of course. And uh, I don't want to slide by or pass by the fact that here, as I said earlier, Jesus provide, provided physical healing uh, for the people uh, whom he had compassion for, as we saw. I don't want to pass by the fact that here also, uh, he provides, first of all, physically for the people, for their hunger. And um, we can hear echoes of the Old Testament lesson again. You know, to come and buy and eat and uh, to work for the, the bread that lasts, not for the bread that doesn't satisfy. And so, but first of all and foremost, we say, first of all, that Jesus provided physically for those who were hungry it also, of course, doesn't it, points ahead 
to a heavenly banquet that uh, we have described again back in Isaiah 55 in the Old Testament. But it, this, this uh, eating, uh, physically eating the bread and the fish here in the presence of Christ, points us ahead to a heavenly banquet that we're going to be partaking of by God's grace through faith in Christ. And we think of, for example, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 11, where Jesus refers to this banquet. He says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Notice there are a couple of things. The heavenly banquet, um, notice that many will come from east and west. We hear again of that incredible uh, collection of peoples and nations that, that we talked of earlier in that heavenly banquet. And we think also uh, another uh, from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 25, that also we hear a description of that heavenly banquet. And we, it's Isaiah chapter 25. I want to look at verses 6 through 9. And here Isaiah says, on, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And that beautiful description, you know, that's again Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, of that heavenly banquet, what beautiful imagery is used there. And certainly this uh, feeding of the 5,000 men, and who knows how many women and children, uh, points us ahead to an even greater banquet to come. And of course we also think and rejoice in the banquet, the feast that we have uh, as in, in and as the Lord's Supper, where again, we are in the presence of our Lord and we are satisfied, uh, as the people were uh, in, in this miracle, we are satisfied as we receive not just bread and wine, but we receive also the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ according to his promise, and we also receive forgiveness and strength. And that, uh, we could also say, is a foretaste of the great heavenly banquet to come as well. Well, just uh, we're running short of time here. Let me just make a couple of comments. Um, God invites, in the Old Testament lesson, those who thirst and are presumably also hungry to come. And is that not what we, as God's instruments, in the church are doing today. We invite those who thirst and who hunger to come, to drink, to eat the bread and the water that satisfies, never to thirst or hunger again. And he is utilizing us to make that invitation, to, to encourage people to come to the only one who can satisfy their thirst and their hunger, spiritually speaking. Um, in the gospel lesson, again, we have people who are physically hungry and they are satisfied, but we think also, of course, of those who are spiritually hungering and will only be satisfied through Christ. 
Um, in the Old Testament lesson, we have the question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Um, in the gospel lesson, we have Jesus, who is the bread of life, the only one who will be able to satisfy. And as he did in multiplying the physical bread, so also satisfying people spiritually with forgiveness and everlasting life. So just some incredible lessons that we have for uh, next Sunday, August 2. We see the grace and the compassion of God throughout all of them. With that then, let's close with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.